City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the Theatre. This seminar, Play Script Director. the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars have been going on for quite some time, and as I look now, we're about to go in to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the American Theatre Wing's Tony Awards. However, the seminars are in its 22nd year, and the American Theatre Wing has been producing these as a service, and it's been a remarkable one at that. It, we have an archive of theater history, and <clears throat> it is geared to give you an insight into what it is to work in the theater, what it is to work in the theater from the view of the performer, the playwright, the director, the set, the scene designer, the agents, and the guilds and unions, those people who work with and for the people. As most of you know, the American Theatre Wing is known for its Tony Awards, and we are indeed very proud of the award, and it has been given in honor of a woman named Antoinette Perry, and it's to recognize the achievement of excellence in the theater. But the wing is busy all year round, not just at Tony time, and our, gear, our goal is to provide services to the community through the theater. We do this in a hospital program in which we send out live, wonderful entertainment to those who can't come into the theater. We go to hospitals and to aid centers and to nursing homes. We have a program called Introduction to Broadway, which is just that. And we do this in cooperation with the Board of Education and the wonderful generosity of the Broadway producers. They make tickets available to the wing at a very minimal price. We, in turn, with the Board of Education, make these tickets available to high school students who pay individually for their ticket. Again, a very small price, and the wing picks up the rest. It's a wonderful opportunity for young people to come to the theater. People who haven't even been out of their own community come to Broadway, and it, they recognize the magic of live theater. And afterwards, from time to time, we're able to have interviews with the performers. And we see that the stage manager is there as well, so that they have role models for them. Out of that program started another one, and that is theater in schools. And it again, it speaks for itself. We bring in performers and uh, playwrights and costume designers to talk with the students to tell them what it is to work in the theater and how they can go about working in the theater. It's a very interesting program and one from which we are very proud of. And then these seminars, they have been going on, as I've said, for all these years, and they are remarkable in the people 
that come to share their knowledge and their expertise with each other and with you. Today's program is on the playwright-director, and to chair that is George White, who is president of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center and is a wonderful director, both here, Russia, Princeton, China, Yale, what did I say, <laughs> and China. And Brendan Gill, who is an author, critic in residence at the New Yorker magazine and on the board of directors of the American Theater Wing. They will introduce this wonderful panel of playwrights and directors to you. Thank you for being here. <clears throat> On my far right is the uh, big booted and blue jeaned uh, Jeff Calhoun, who's uh, <laughs> uh, who directed uh, and choreographed the uh, shy and still hesitant uh, production of Busker Alley. Uh, has also directed the current production of Grease and uh, was the associated choreographer of the Will Rogers Follies. And next to him is John Tillinger, decorously dressed, uh, and who is preparing uh, at this moment to uh, direct the revival of Death Trap, which will be coming to Broadway later this season, and is currently represented by his direction of the comedy, Sylvia Off-Broadway. He was nominated for a Tony for Joe Orton's Lute in 1986. And most decorously dressed of all is Mike Oakrent, who was in rehearsal for the opening or reopening of A Christmas Carol, who also directed Crazy for You and Me and My Girl. Um, I, I think they're better dressed on my side. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, Look at that. Uh, uh, downstage left, since this is a directing uh, playwright uh, seminar, is Lee Roy Reams, who is currently back as an actor in Beauty and the Beast as Lumiere, uh, but is here today as the director of the revival of Hello, Dolly. Uh, on his right is uh, Ann Mera, known nationally as half of the comedy team of Stiller and Mera, uh, as an actress on and off Broadway, but now a playwright with a comedy after play at Theater Four. And next to her is Michael Leeds, who is the writer and director of Swinging on a Star, which is at the Music Box Theater currently. He directed the production at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut, and then at the George Street Playhouse before bringing it to Broadway. On my immediate left is uh, Lloyd Richards, who uh, is uh, the former dean of the Yale School of Drama, artistic director of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center's National Playwrights Conference, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, his Broadway uh, credits include Fences, um, and uh, his long association with August Wilson uh, brings him to the current uh, fact that he is currently uh, working uh, and directing uh, around the country a production of August Wilson's new play, Seven Guitars. Well done. George, pop the first question. Well, I'd like to start uh, with uh, the playwright, since that's where everything <coughs> begins in the theater. Um, and... Uh, and when did you first start getting these uh, feelings of having to be a playwright? And you said you, you wanted to do it and were writing very quickly. Uh, what brought you to that? And uh, when what's happening? I was happening? 64, now that I'm 66, I started very fast. So uh, <laughs> uh, once those ovaries stop kicking in, is the time to start writing if you haven't yet. <laughs> I, uh, first of all, I'm very flattered that. Uh, 
to be on this panel and included as a playwright with everyone else. So it's a and kick how is you having been a, 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 an actress? Um, tell me about the the uh, your feeling of, of suddenly being in a different position and the relationship vis-a-vis -vis the director and how all that works. Well, I uh, this is the second play I've written, but the first produced. So I was truly, um, you know, a, a, a virgin in that sense of the process. And I was very happy to uh, have David Saint uh, see my vision of the play and, and show me even more, as did the actors. Because I, I found out that I was really a little uh, splitzo there, Jekyll and Hyde. When, as a writer, I thought, my God, these actors, why don't they get it together? <laughs> you know, I had no patience. And David calmed me down. And uh, now that I'm in my own play, I, uh, I, I really am a better actor than I ever was. I like to think because I don't care about acting as much and I don't have that actor's ego. Of course, the ego has all gone into the writer, you see. <laughs> yeah. You take suggestions readily. Some playwrights do, some playwrights do not. Well, I, I, I don't think I'd take suggestions from just anyone. Mm. I think I would take, I, and did, uh, from the director who, who didn't have, he said, something has to happen here, and I wrote another scene. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, uh, and I wrote it in a day because uh, there's a couple that come on in the play, and there's a big trauma, and they leave, and we didn't see other people affected by it. So I. It's you a really know. quite intricately parted thing. It's a, I can't imagine putting together a nice pot like that. I can't either, and I don't know how <laughs> I did. But I really mean that. Yeah. But I think it's also great if I may, uh, I must uh, plug the Manhattan Theatre Club to have the uh, that aegis of that uh, that institution to be able to uh, to put to give life to what you've written. You scribble some stuff down, and Jim Humans comes in with a set. Mm -hmm. John Gramata comes in with a, a sound thing that he, subliminal thing, and Don Holder lights. It's wonderful. And does that mean you're now starting another one? You must be. Well, I'm, I'm in this one. I'd like this one to continue to have a life as long as it's uh, respectably possible. And um, yes, I, I really had no desire to be in the play. It was because the wonderful Rue McClanahan had a more lucrative uh, paying job, I believe, <laughs> and had to leave after the Manhattan Theatre Club. Mm -hmm. So with Afterplay, uh, the producers uh, asked would I go in, and I said, sure. And uh, so it's, uh, no, I really w want to write. But then I hear, so does Mother Teresa, so who knows? <laughs> I thought she wanted to direct. And to write. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Oh, the woman is, you know, it's a bottomless pit there. Yeah. She won't stop. <laughs> Uh, Lloyd, you uh, have had obviously a long relationship with with uh, live playwrights as well as uh, dead playwrights. But uh, uh, going back, want to know which is best? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, but and, and also about taking suggestions because I know that your original uh, relationship with Lorraine Hansberry that you really guided that production uh, of uh, Raisin in the Sun, and uh, you know I, I assume that. Uh, that was relatively early on in your career, and obviously, uh, all of those things on through Athol Fugard and uh, and August Wilson. I want to talk about the relationship of the director and the the playwright, which is a very delicate one, or can be a very delicate one. It is a very delicate one, and 
a very interesting one and one that varies with the playwright. It's, uh, it's a different marriage each time that you go into it, and they all work dif differently. But I like them best when they are strong and have a strong point of view and are not susceptible simply to anything I say. A playwright who is willing to just adopt anything I say, I might as well be the playwright. And we are missing one person in the functioning process. So the playwright who, to me, listens to what I have to say and then takes my suggestion, goes away and comes back with something better, that's the playwright I'm looking for and that's the relationship that I want. I think that my job, or I figure my job, is to d discern the intent of the playwright, whether he discerns it or not, whether he understands, even sometimes they don't, their own real goal with the play. But uh, my job is to discern that and try and suggest, cajole, provoke, stimulate, whatever him toward that end, to the realization of his basic intent. Uh, that, I take, is my job. Sometimes it's easier than others because what you're always limited by is my limitation and his limitation. There's sometimes that he has a good idea, or he may have, or I may have, and it's just not fulfillable by that, the talents that are involved. That was so eloquent, and yet you brought up the question also of uh, the marriage with a dead playwright. Now, in the case of dead playwrights, what is your attitude toward their material? Well, you know, I think that it is for most directors much simpler to, to discern the intent of a dead playwright than a live one. A live playwright is always like there to say, no, I don't mean that at all, whether he mm -hmm. does it or not. Uh, a dead playwright, and many people take uh, great liberties with this, you can impose a concept on and say, yes, I get it from that, that's what he meant. Mm -hmm. That's what he wanted, and then you go do it your way, you know. Uh, but and you can cut. And, oh, you can <laughs> cut, oh, <laughs> with, with, uh, with great elan. <laughs> you think that's one of the most important things that a director can do? Uh, well, I mean, he has to, I, I think Lloyd said it all, but I think a director has to shape and, and fulfill the vision of the playwright, and it's easier sometimes when um, the, the playwright who, whose best friend is the waste paper basket is a playwright that I like because um, he, he knows that it, it, he has to be pragmatic. Um, I've been very lucky in that I've uh, um, directed plays by Terence McNally and Arthur Miller and, and Pete Gurney and a number of them, so we have a working relationship. But it's, it's, um, it's sometimes very hard for a, a playwright to give up some lines uh, or a whole scene which doesn't bring the play forward. Uh, is that the most important thing? I hope not. I mean, it's just, it's just something that happens um, a, a lot because... Um, and is important, perhaps not the most, but it's it, it is. It is important, and uh, some playwrights you don't cut at all. Uh, Pete Gurney, you don't, uh, it's hard to cut his stuff. He's worked it all out, uh, right down to an if and a but. And um, sometimes you ask him for rewrites. I have many times, but mostly he's got it all worked out. Terence McNally has a, a, a screeds of stuff that you have to hone down. And then there's a great deal of rewriting during the... Um, during the rehearsal period, um, and shaping and moving things around. And, and frankly, also with Arthur Miller, I've only done two new Arthur Millers, uh, but um, one, uh, we, I added 
I asked him to add a scene, and I think it helped the play a lot. It helped Tom Aldridge's part. Uh, but with Broken Glass, um, it, there was a great deal of rearranging and, uh, and uh, uh, reworking, and it took, uh, it took a long time. Um, you know, it, the process took uh, a year and a half. Now, what uh, directors are accused of occasionally, and it's said to be the current besetting sin, is, is their tendency to do what, uh, 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 that imposing a, a, a vision on, on a dead playwright. And uh, in the old days, that was a much less common thing, apparently, well, to I, express I, oneself through somebody else's play. I agree. I think uh, there is, uh, the, the modern theory is, is you know, that the, uh, the, the, the text is just a springboard. I, I believe, because I'm old and I belong to a different tradition, is that the text is everything. Without the playwright, we are nothing. And that I'm there to serve the playwright, whether it be Shakespeare or whoever. I mean, I, I just have done a production of As You Like It at the Long Wharf. Um, and I did move some stuff around. And I have to be honest, it works very well. Um, it's much clearer. I did it for scenic reasons more than anything else. Uh, but, and also because I was forced to double. Uh, the Duke Senior and, Duke, uh, and the Duke Frederick are played by the same man. So I had to have some time to, uh, to have him change costumes. But it, it certainly works very well. And I was able to cut certain things which are really obscure. And mm -hmm. until you get to that, I don't know if you've ever done it, Michael, but that last scene where Touchstone does that long thing about, uh, um, you know, the, the, the long speed that he does, um, which is a lot of jokes that was meant something to the Elizabethans but doesn't to us. Yeah. Uh, it's incomprehensible. Uh, but you have to have it because that's the moment that Rosalind changes into a, into a lady. Um, and uh, uh, puts but then on her here's dress. a playwright director in one. So now, right. how do you feel about this? Well, uh, it was actually, in some ways, easier working with myself as a playwright, <laughs> and in some ways harder. You know, uh, you know, sometimes being in a room and talking to yourself, going, "You will, I won't. You will, I won't." You know, <laughs> about rewriting. But the. Actually, the opposite happened with me, where I found that I was more prone to rewrite quicker because I was also the director, so I would go in and change things a lot sooner than I think I would have if there was another director working with me or if I was working with another playwright. You cut down the, uh, the diplomatic uh, maneuvering, I guess, within yourself. Although, how, was the, uh, uh, how, how did you feel about... Uh, uh, you know, your objectivity? Did you feel that you had enough, you could stand back and really see? Because I would think that would be very, very tough. Pretty much. I felt, I felt that I was, I was pretty objective about it, more from the, the director's eye, you know, and also working with the actors. And because it was a, a piece in process, I could write for them. And that made it a lot easier. Uh -huh. not, not, so it almost not an not an improvisation, but I mean, you you had people there that you, you could. It was almost was it a collaboration that it, it, with, with in a way the, yes, using I them. I mean, it always is with with a new piece, but uh, especially with this, and also using Johnny Burke's music uh, and songs as a guidepost, it became a kind of weird collaboration that I hadn't experienced before. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, you know, I was uh, we were talking also before the the show, uh, Leroy. You you are. Um, in, with the with Hello Dolly, you are dealing with uh, talking about sadly a lot of people who have left the scene. Uh, you have not a lot of uh, live people, but you are dealing with in many ways an icon uh, in, in in the in the star. But you also have to. I mean, 
Thornton Wilder is no longer here, and Michael Stewart is no longer here. Um, and uh, you've, I mean, how did you approach that? That must have been tough because it certainly is. It's a famous show. Uh, and uh, well, basically, I had worked with Michael Stewart during a revival of Dolly in '78, so oh, I had? knew Michael very closely, and of course, did 42nd Street with Michael, and of course, with Gower Champion, and I also did a lot of pre-production work with Gower on 42nd Street, so I knew the man well. <clears throat> so doing a show that I actually love, I love Hello Dolly, and Carol Channing has been very supportive since Lorelei with my career, so I had a great deal of reverence, but at the same time, too, I had to do what I felt was necessary to make the play fresh, and also to use the actors, because I think that is probably the easiest thing for a director if you get the right kind of actors. You can just kind of allow them so much of an input. And uh, I think that made it fresher. <clears throat> and also little, little tiny things that I focused, because I had this wonderful blueprint of Gowers, and I, I uh, certainly respected it. But also, uh, we had some things we wanted to put in. There was a, a little scene at the end of dancing where uh, she starts in the hat shop, and they go into the street, and <clears throat> everybody's dancing around. And I wanted to show to go back to the original concept of Thornton Wilder's matchmaker, to take it literally saying matchmaking. So I wanted to have her pair up all of the people during the number, which was not done before. So I involved the principals a little more. And at the end of the play, a uh, little mini Fay comes and dances around Dolly and exits, <clears throat> does a little pullback. And Carol always said, well, you see, that's the young girl giving me life. Here's Gower explained, it's the young girl giving me life. And I thought that was all fine. But what I wanted to do was show the pairing. So I left Barnaby on stage so that Barnaby took Minnie Fay and pulled her off. So during the number, you saw all these people being paired up, and suddenly Dolly was alone. And then she goes back to where she is and says, let me go, Ephraim. I thought that was a stronger statement rather than because there wasn't a little asterisk saying giving life, mm -hmm. you know, in the play. So little bitty things like that. And, of course, then what you, the hardest thing was dealing with the memory that everyone had of what they saw. And... Uh, I know that I talked to the set designer, and I said, we must make the staircase bigger than it was. Let's put lights on it. Let's put jewels on it. Let's put brass uh, carpet rods on it. Let's do everything to the staircase. And still, in one of the reviews, they said, the staircase seems to be smaller and narrower <laughs> than I remember, because you know that you're dealing with the memory. That was difficult, but uh, that's, that's what, what you, you do. So a little things like that, but I had a, a great deal of respect and reverence for the original creative people and wanted to present that to the public once but again. But you also did wonderfully uh, charged the whole thing with so much energy. I think what startled and pleased uh, people more than anything else about the show was that it didn't have the least sense of a revival that way. The energy was authentic. It was leaping off the stage and the audience responded instantly to that. They, they felt, if anything, more uh, rejuvenated than they could have possibly expected to be. It wasn't a memory trip for them. It, it became something new. And uh, that, that uh, night when I happened by good fortune to be actually seated next to Leroy, who was laughing heartily. <laughs> But the audience uh, was on his feet again and again and again, and it was not an inauthentic expression of their joy. It was, it's a tremendous well, thing. We, it's a phenomenon that you've created. Well, we, we spent a lot of time talking because I think there was a lot of sexuality in the play because it happens in one day, and astrologically you feel, well, the planets were all bumping, and suddenly everybody wants to go out, and um, you can't say, yeah, um, but you can't say that in the play. But basically that's what they all want to do. I mean, Cornelius wants to kiss a... 
uh, a girl, which is as far as you can go, and Barnaby swept along many fa Mrs. Malloy no longer wants to be a, 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 a widow, and Dolly wants to find someone, and so, so they're all trying to find her. So a lot of sexuality, and also the, the women's liberation thing was very important to me to express to Carol because a woman at the turn of the century only had few choices to make a living, and one of which to, was to adapt, adapt her husband's lifestyle, but she could only go so far. And suddenly she got to the point where she was just tired of working. The only thing left was her femininity, so you sell it to get back into marriage. So a lot of that I discussed uh, with Carol, so I think that it gave Carol a stronger purpose as far as playing that character, that she became uh, uh, more focused on getting... It didn't become suddenly a light little... Valentine piece. It became stronger, and also so long. Deary became uh, a number like you know you you don't want me, Horace. I don't want you. I'm out of here. I can still have a life, and I'm on the road back to join the human race. So I'm going to have a good time, learn and dance and drink and smoke a cigarette. So I wanted it to be a stronger statement, and uh, Carol even took it a step further in her own inimitable way. And uh, so I, I felt that that was a nice thing, too, that happened with the show. It'll be a long time before she gets to China at this rate, <laughs> <laughs> where you'll be directing. I, was, I wanted to find out, you know, Crazy for You is a kind of a hybrid in that way because it was an old show and yet it's mm -hmm. a new show. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, how was that evolution? Talk about that because you had all the music there. You had a basic, I guess, frame. Yes. And what the, did you have to do, and how did you put that all together? Well, when the, the producers, uh, Roger Horchow and Elizabeth Williams, um, flew to London to talk to me about doing Crazy View, they, they were influenced by me and my girl and the process that we'd gone through with me and my girl, because what they, uh, they felt that me and my girl was an old show that nobody really knew but needed a lot of work and new interpolated songs. Uh, and they felt the same thing about Girl Crazy, which uh, they wanted to, um, I suppose, revive, but wanted to revive with the purpose of, uh, of actually creating a new show. They wanted it to be a new version of it. Um, they felt that the book was weak, uh, and indeed it was. The, the book was certainly, in uh, Ken Ludwig's, in my view, really unusable, except that the basic idea of uh, an Easterner going west was what underpinned that story and we certainly wanted to use again. Um, we were really encouraged in this by the Gershwin estate who um, really opened every door to giving us access to virtually any of the material that was found in the uh, Secaucus warehouse, that great mm -hmm. discovery of Gershwin material. So we had access to all the, the tune books, the tune, uh, the tune books that, that uh, the Gershwins had left. Um, so through Tommy Kraska, who was the archivist of the Gershwins, uh, we sort of had a kind of, as close as ever one can get, as a kind of direct line back to, to the Gershwins. So we, uh, we really formed the whole show, Ken and I, as we, we over a long kind of working period of, de of deciding on a storyline and a plot and scene by scene. Um, and then calling Tommy and saying, well, we need, listen, we're going, to, we're going to start a show. We're going to do the beginning of a show at the end of the first act. It, did, they, uh, did George and I ever write anything that, that, that would be appropriate? And the fax machine about an hour later would spring into life and music would come pouring out. And <laughs> That's so one really, as a director, would, uh, you were really writing it too. Oh, right? absolutely, absolutely. And, and so he would he provide us with two or three different possible songs, and, and out of that we would, uh, we would use... Tonight's a Night was the song that, that we then used 
for that, mm -hmm. and then we would restructure the scene around the material that we had, that we were given. So we really, uh, we were very fortunate, actually, in that, first of all, we had all the help possible from the Gershwins, their enthusiasm for all kinds of reasons, mostly to do with the fact that the copyright is running out, and this yeah. was a way to, to actually... <laughs> start uh, over. To start all over again to the lifetime of Ken Ludwig plus 50 years. So, uh, <laughs> yes. I think there's a lot of uh, insurance uh, on Ken's life at the moment. But, uh, so that it was, um, it was a very uh, a two-way two -way process. So and we, had a, we, You had a brand-new uh, producer, Roger Harshaw. Yeah. His yeah. dream had always been to have a show on Broadway. It was the first time, I think, in history it ever happened yeah. that a man had that dream and made it come true, thanks to you. Well, he, 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 uh, when he was seven, George Gershwin came and played the piano in his house. So as a little boy, he kind of came out onto the, uh, onto the balcony of his house and looked down and sort of heard this kind of wonderful piano playing, and there was... He said, yeah, it was, yes, there was somebody playing this wonderful yeah. music, and it turned out to be George Gershwin. I don't think the piano was ever dusted again. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, and it was a dream of his then to do one show only. He always said, he's always said he would only do one show. Roger, this is not George. And uh, this was the show that he wanted to do. And uh, He sold uh, his company for an enormous amount of money, hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars, he gave Yale $20 million. And I think it's true that he and the family, they all got together and they voted whether Dad right. could spend five million, was it five million? Nine. Oh, nine, nine million, million on the show and the children evidently and be prepared voted. To, and be prepared to lose yeah, the whole right. of the nine the, million. The nine million. The children said, fair, go for it. It's a fairy tale, isn't it? I it mean, is. We all dream of that happening. Did you workshop this for a, for a number of months? I no. mean, did you do a workshop of no. it at all? No, not at no. all. No, actually, I, I'm, I'm a great disbeliever in workshops. Yes, I am too. Topic. Well, we'll get into that We've got the tallest man on the show. Yes, that's 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 it. We're moving according, as my old first sergeant says, fallen according to tall. So, yes, let's hear about I thought I was thinking for wearing jeans. He's not allowed to talk. Tell us about, you know, I know that there's been, because of... Also, I'd like, your choreographer, director, right? Explain that. Well, it's been interesting listening to everyone because, you know, there are no rules. I don't really think, and we all have quite different experiences, and a playwright, you know, is God. And when you're doing a musical, though, you have a third of the talking, and then, you know, you can make up your own numbers, but basically a third talking, a third singing, and a third dancing. So people are valuable at different, depending on whether you're doing a musical or a play or a revival or a new show. It's always hard to direct and choreograph any show, but... Uh, revival is a whole lot easier than a new show. At least from my experience of Grease and Busker Alley, you, you really, I don't feel like you directed a show until you do an original show. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're just decorating. You can take a revival and try to recreate it and give it a new palette and rearrange the songs, but until you create something from scratch, for me personally, I didn't feel like I had really directed a show until Busker Alley. Had you been a dancer? Had you come to this from anything else? Yeah, I started in the chorus. Mm -hmm. And then moved on to <coughs> directing and choreography. Choreography first with mm -hmm. the Little Rogers Follies was my first show there. Kind of really my audition, I think, for the big time. Yeah. You know, had the choreography for that show not been successful, I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't be here today or even in New York City for that matter. So that really launched a lot of things. How did you start? You said that you started in the choreography. How did you do that? <clears throat> Did you go to school? Were you a dancer? In a I just always danced. I think everybody who's a dancer started when they were eight or nine, like in Chorus Line, in the dance around the living room, dance for Grandma. That's all of our stories, I think. 
and then in community theater, and then in high school, and then in college. Well, how did you, did you go to school in, I mean, for dance? Did you go to a dance I went to Northwestern or? University, yeah, basically just, just liberal arts. Mm -hmm. And I only went one year, and that's when um, Tommy Toon asked me if I would leave school and tour the country in these boots doing the best little whorehouse <laughs> in Texas. Uh -huh. And so I, I promised my parents that as soon as I finished that job, I'd go back to college, and that's the only way they would agree to let me do it. Well, I haven't been back yet, but <laughs> I got to do the show. Well, tell us about the, a little bit about the, because I know that because of Tommy Toon being uh, injured and all, uh, the uh, Busker Alley, the odyssey of Busker, Busker Alley, I think is important to just have it, the seminar to see, because you're starting from scratch, you have just physical problems. I know it's been an odyssey. It was an, it's an amazing, it's been seven years on this show for me. Oh. Um, in 1988, I had the idea I wanted to do Mary Poppins on Broadway with Tommy Toon and Cindy Lauper. And at that point, I thought if you had a good idea and you said it to somebody, I was very naive. They'd say, oh, great, go do it. That was before I even met a lawyer. At that point. <laughs> so I went to the Sherman Brothers who did the music and lyrics for Mary Poppins, and I had this wonderful meeting with them. And they explained to me why, for many reasons, really boring. To get into that would never happen, and I didn't have a chance of doing that. But they went to the bookshelf and pulled this script off the bookshelf, and they gave it to me, and they said, we own this show, and if you'd like to do it, you could do this tomorrow. And I took it home with me, and it was called Blow Us a Kiss. They had written it 22 years earlier for Tommy Steele to star in, in London. And it never, it never got on, and I took it home, and I fell in love with it product is very difficult as we all know to find especially a new show and I thought it was really a wonderful show and I didn't know what else to do other than I had this fabulous show in my hand and Tommy Toon happened to be in Los Angeles about two months after I found this script I called him up at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel where he was staying and I said could I read you a script and get your opinion on a show so I sat by the pool and I read him the entire show and when it was over I closed the script and Tommy said well that's a show for me. And I said, well, I was hoping you, you know, I wanted that to come out of his mouth. And so with Tommy attached to the project, I was going to say it was easy to get on seven years later. We're still waiting to open. But obviously when you have Tommy Toon attached to a project as your star, then doors began to open, and at least then you got to interview with producers and try to pitch and, and sell this show. But it's a long, long process. And I'm still learning. I mean, it was very difficult for me. What was well shows are it's hard to raise six and seven million dollars. So that was mostly in the funding of it to get it on. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, every time we thought we were ready artistically and something would fall through, every time we had a problem, it allowed us to make the show better. And I believe in my heart of hearts, with Tommy's accident and his foot, somehow in the master plan, this will also work in our favor. And when we do triumph, whenever it is, it will be that much more of a success story for all of us. Well, I certainly hope so. Let us all, We all have been waiting for well, it. What do you do about casting when a thing lasts so long? How long were you actually in productions when you got there? Well, I say seven years. That was not with a cast. No, that I was understand. really developing so and raising last money. Year we or? workshopped the show, <laughs> and um, unlike um, Michael, I'm a... I'm a, a strong believer in I'm not good enough yet to not workshop. I don't know how people do it. I really don't know how they do it. I mean, you learn so much from it. I mean, Crazy for You is really quite a, an accomplishment that you could open a show like that and have it be good so early. 
that's not been my experience um, with, with well, shows at all. Well, there are the, the music was yes. there for a start. First of all, well, that's a very good, that's right. So it was much simpler. But also, there's, we did a series of readings, so that even though they weren't workshops, we certainly heard the show, we read the show uh, a number of times, so we weren't going in cold. And from that, we, we had good indications of But I think that's wonderful, because I read a show and I think, wow, this is ready, and then when it's on its feet, it's different. And then once you get it where it's perfect on its feet or you believe in your heart it's perfect, then when you add the mm -hmm. costumes and the scenery, somehow it all changes again. And uh, the values are all different. At least that's what but I That's also find. true, isn't it, from a workshop to, um, to getting it on a footy-fledged production as well. Well, which so, is yeah. why Michael Bennett had the, you know, there will never be something that good yeah. because he eliminated that shock because he did a show about people wearing what they wear right. in a location where they do it, singing about what they really do. So it was, you know... It's an interesting observation. Yeah. Well, Michael, what is your objection to workshops in principle? In principle, well, I think they can be very dangerous, is really what I think about them. I think there is a, there is a temptation to go just as far as a workshop and then never go further, because it's very easy at that point. We spent $125,000, and it's never the full version of the show, and it's very easy then to stop. I think that the danger of it is, is that it, it stops a lot of shows that would get on from actually getting on. People it's, lose heart? I think they lose heart. I think what you do is they become backers' auditions, effectively, and the backers, go, the backers go, wait a minute, wait a minute, uh, this doesn't seem quite right to me. Maybe they should do another workshop, and, you know, and then the process just goes on and on and on. Workshop, no matter, as if it's the as real if it's show. The show that's no, matter, right. no matter that it has right. the auspice of workshop right. on it, I found that people well, still go in and go, right. well, that's the show. And what seems to me important yeah. is actually is making sure it's in people's imaginations, right. you know. So right. I think that from a reading which costs next to nothing, on which you can do a series of them, we're working on a, a new musical big at the moment that we're, uh, that's going to open on Broadway in uh, April, and we've done so far about six readings, and each one of those, those has told us an enormous amount uh, about the construction of the show and the shape of the show in a way that I feel that one workshop would may have told us one thing, but not as much as a series. Well, no, you're right. The danger of that, as you know, they, I like to, don't show half work to fools. Yeah. <laughs> and so that can be a problem in a workshop, having to that, fill in, let, not trusting yeah. people's imagination yeah. to like see what you know. Like watching a rough cut in a movie. Yeah. That's right. Be careful <laughs> who you show not that. Knowing that don't you think also artistic people, you give them the amount of time they do their work. You say, we have three months to do it. They do it in three months. They, you say, we're going to do it in two weeks. Mm -hmm. They do it in two weeks. I think you just put a time limit on it. And you do it, it's like doing stock. Suddenly you have 10 days, you put the work in and you like do it. Like the world, seven days, yeah. done. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have a long time, you take a long time. So I, I think it's... You don't normally workshop a play, for example. You know, you do a workshop? We, we actually first did it uh, at George Street. Then we did it almost reverse. We did it at George Street, then we went up to Goodspeed and did it as a workshop there in their small theater. Mm -hmm. uh, minor costumes and, and very minor set then went to their main stage and then came, came to Broadway. The interesting thing was that, uh, in line with what we were saying, that people who came to the workshop and produ other producers, investors, the Schuberts, looked at the workshop and said, well, we like it, but it's not a Broadway show. And, and, I was, and in my mind, I knew it was a Broadway show and I knew what could be done with it, but there was no convincing other than going to the main stage, had a little more set, a little more costume, and then they could start to see, and of course, finally coming to Broadway and you know and there it is but I think it's really dangerous what I found with workshops because even though you expect people in the business to know all of their imagination they still look at it as a finished product the, the other just to 
it's an interesting discussion because I think that the uh, the problem at the moment that we ha that we have here in New York is that there is a lack of good new material and a lack of material. There is a small pot of money, which is mm -hmm. Jeff's point. <laughs> Therefore, we've all got to be very conscious of how we spend this money. If in fact we spend one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a workshop, that is a correspondingly less money to be spread around on developing other shows. If there's a cheaper way to do it and yet get as as much quality as we can, we may end up with a lot more shows in development right. uh, that stand a chance but, of I mean, getting on. Well, what's been lost is the, the out-of-town triad. I mean, the stories of Funny Girl on the road or indeed Hello Dolly, which were, uh, were, were terrible. And that's where people workshopped and redid uh, re re the show. Stephen Sondheim, uh, who is a neighbor of mine, said that he feels that he's the last person who has been allowed to learn on Broadway how to, how to put on a show, uh, touring as well. I mean, and the classic story is, is the one of uh, a funny thing happened to the way the forum where they, nobody laughed. I mean, nobody laughed until they stuck that song at the top of the show. Uh, and that happened on the road. And that cannot happen in a workshop no. because everybody's trying to sell the show and then the people who put their money into the show uh, say, I don't want a thing changed. That's what I want. And so the creative juices stop. But see, so. the problem when you're doing a musical is you, you can't do that out of town anymore because right. the cost, it's but so expensive. But you must. I, I would think that with, with everything being so expensive, you've got to budget money for out of town. Well, uh, I think it is yes. so dangerous oh, going to, to, to open town. in New York, no matter going, you are what happens. Yes, absolutely. You get that buzz I, I around that it's in trouble, it's not in Where trouble. And it, 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 so it puts an added burden on you. And I, I, I think with everything being so expensive, you have to add one more to take well, away the opening night party mm -hmm. and put it into an out of town. Well, well the case of Big is quite illustrative of that is that was the opening night party. <laughs> <laughs> the actors look forward to it. No, sorry, not, not at all. No, I can't okay. agree with that actually. I think it's did you did you workshop what what was the story of, of after play? Oh, well, Michael was in the middle of something. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was you said you're taking Big on the yes, road. Yes, well, well, Big is quite, I was just going to say it's illustrative, is that we were going to open in Boston this summer, but the, the possibility of such, of going out of town and losing a lot of money because there was no guarantee made it prohibitive. So what we then did is we waited till we found Detroit, actually in February, which is very good. Nobody will come and see it. We're very safe. <laughs> but that will so be we're, good. But we have four weeks be there on you. guarantees. Be good for Detroit. It's guarantees so that we're uh, an isolated in snow, hopefully. I, so we can... Uh, I have a question that I, I was in, because Brennan, you were sitting on the opening night of Hello, the actual opening, and the other critics had been there two days before. How do you feel about this idea of critics coming during that period, about having the opening night when it was so exciting? And, Suddenly they're coming two and three days before, and you have like four performances where you're judged. And I know we had a dreadful, we had a dreadful matinee where there were a lot of uh, people who didn't respond, and the critics were there, and we had a disastrous Wednesday night, and the critics were there. And then suddenly Thursday night was wonderful. How do you feel about that? I, I the first found time, it very strange to go through that. First time process. I've ever been honored to be a part of a panel. <laughs> <laughs> George and I never have been asked any questions. Anyway, uh, 
uh, in the old days when I was a Broadway uh, critic and, and I always wanted to go to opening night, I think it's much too hard. It's all part of newspapers and, and uh, union hours and when you can get your review in and all the rest of it, which is nonsense. But the thrillingness of opening night is an authentic, separate thing. And I, and I would always myself, if it were possible, believe in opening night and not having anything else. And it began to break down many years ago when people were going to into matinees and things like that, which I don't think is fair at all. London still has a Yeah, London still does. And, and I, lo I love that. I, I miss it's a it. Five, it's a five, six, seven uh, day horse race. I mean, they, they, they have, these actors have to climb up yes. on, their, on those horses again and ride them for all they're worth, and they are finished. Well, I'm not a rider, and so I don't know how the, the critic feels about it, but I assume that there's got to be an excitement lost when a critic had to see a show, run home, figure it out right there, still caught up in his heart and in his mind and the energy of the evening, as opposed to sitting home for a few days, thinking about it, looking through the dictionary and, and encyclopedia. <laughs> I don't know if, uh, how you would react to that as a critic, but I would imagine a great deal to start. I think, I think it was lost. important in the old days for people to, to write right at that very moment. Uh, we had a famous critic of the Herald Tribune, Percy Hammond, who used to race over to the Tribune offices and place an open coffee can of gin beside his typewriter <laughs> and then get to work on that. Like, like that. I mean, that's they, the way to get it. Yeah, done. that's I, like I mean, that. they cover... Makes you want to write. Now, they, they cover stories all over the world and have to make up their minds yeah. immediately uh, about what, what has happened. So why can't... I mean, they are journalists exactly. after all. Now, when, well, Big is written by whom and, and what is Richard it? Richard Mulpey and Shire. Richard Mulpey, David Shire, and John Weidman's written the book. Mm -hmm. And it's based on the Tom Hanks movie. Mm -hmm. and Did you workshop Big? No, we've done five readings. You know, it's interesting because I wanted to bring it back to Lloydman because we're talking about also, and Lloyd, you've done both musicals and plays, and also the difference between a, when is a reading not a workshop and when is a reading a work. There's a delicate distinction there. And I would think that you get a great deal out of a reading which could be maybe construed as a workshop, too. Do you want to well, talk about that? Well, workshop has and, to do also with intent. And what I hear people talking about is what is the intent of what you do. If the intent is to raise money, then really what you're doing is a mini-show. Correct. For the purpose of raising money and affecting people then in that time. Not necessarily for the development of the work itself. So the intent of the persons involved, for me, is a very important part of it. Uh, if uh, a reading really is to just, to read the sense of the play and to discover what is in that text, whether what is in that text has value, and where it has value, and where it might not have value, but not to view it as a performance, but as a discovery of the work. What is there? And uh, I think that uh, in hearing us talk about it, I think we're talking about various things, different things. And it all has to do with the intent of the people who set it up. You, know, you set up uh, a work or a reading for a purpose. What is really even the purpose that you won't admit to yourself while you're doing this? And that can affect the work. Certainly. If you, I know I had a, a very strange experience the, the other day. There was a show I was going to do, and uh, I went in to do an audition, uh, audition some actors, and uh, a producer showed up 
with uh, a coterie of people to sit in on the auditioning of the actors. He didn't understand what an audition really is, that private thing that goes on in the exploration of, of between the director and an actor relative to a particular role, and how delicate that is or can be. It became, and for those people, it became a question of, well, do I invest money in this or not? Of the, so the intent was absolutely off, absolutely wrong, absolutely destructive. And personally, if I were an actor and walked into that, I'd say, who is this? Who is all of this? What is that purpose in being here? Has it got anything to do with why I am here? And it certainly doesn't. So it was invalid experience altogether. The, and that can happen with the play and the development of the play. Brian Murray was saying yesterday that he hated the word audition, that he wished there was a better word like meeting or something that, so that you wouldn't no, have that. No, it's an time. audition, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, what it is. They're going they to decide hard. whether you're right, whether you're right. Or, it's a or wrong. Word. And it's very hard. Yeah. And uh, a actors uh, have learned to, uh, more on the coast it seems, one thing they've learned to be is obedient. Mm -hmm. And did I you, hate did that. You, were you in on the auditions for your actors in Afterplay? Did yes. Did you go to them? <clears throat> yes. That must and have been uh, a certain kind of schizophrenia for you, wasn't it? I don't care for that at all. I, I don't want to be the person who says yes. I don't want to be the person who says no. Obviously, eventually, along the line, before I croak in this world, I'm going to have to learn to. But mm -hmm. I, I really, you know, uh, I would talk it over with David Saint, our director, later. In answer to your question that we uh, got off on, we did not workshop after play. Mm -hmm. uh, I had two readings. First was set up by my agent, Flora Roberts, and Flora said, uh, at New Dramatist. Flora said, you want to have this reading here at New Dramatist. That's the way Flora talks, folks. Anyway, and she was heavenly and did that. And uh, at that reading was uh, Katie Lowell from Manhattan Theatre Club, and she recommended uh, it to Lynn Meadow. And we had another reading at Manhattan Theatre Club, and they decided to do it. That's it. But the readings can also go very wrong. Sometimes you can have somebody in a crucial part who is dead wrong for the part, and then everybody at the Manhattan Theatre Club says, oh, this play doesn't work, and so on. And they, the only reason you've got that particular actor or actress is that they were willing to do it. I mean, I, I have seen that happen right. with two plays, which right. then went on to have a life elsewhere. Right. Um, but it was a bad reading. And I had great actors. I was very lucky. Yeah. And they were all friends. The, the have you been around a long Because of the performers? The well, it was somebody who was miscast, you know. They shouldn't have been cast in. It's an audition by the Manhattan Theatre Club. The yes, that's right. The They're going to see. No, I didn't have any workshop. That's what they do. You there. are being judged whether yeah. this is going to fit into our schedule. Would our subscribers like it? Right. You know. And, and you'd be so it hangs on whether you've cast it properly right. or whether you know, it's another audition. But Luckily, I'm surprised how many theatres do that now. Where you're discovering the work. The I didn't think of that, Lloyd, when I was doing it. I just called, called up old friends, whoever I'd done a favor for, or do me a favor, you know. So. Because everybody's very frightened these days of making a decision about anything. Anything. You know, I'm not the, the only one. Is that, you know, I, I don't know if this plays any good. You read it. Yes. Tell me whether you think it's any good. And people you know, don't, we don't read it anymore. They like to yeah. hear it. They like to hear it, and somehow this has right. a mystical quality. We've yeah. lost the, the habit of reading a play and saying, 
well, this is good, this works, maybe this structure's not quite right here. And we've lost the courage of our convictions. Producers have, directors have. Of course, also in the old days, 50 years ago, uh, the people who were going to back plays weren't permitted to see any, but they just considered themselves yeah. lucky to be angels. Right. They were called angels right. because they were operative without having right. any knowledge of anything. And a Howard Coleman simply wrote checks. He, he never knew what it was going to be. It was like gambling in, in a casino. But that was good. It kept them out of the way. And they didn't have a nerve to say anything. Then, of course, it became commonplace for businessmen themselves to become producers, and the fat was in the fire. Right. Yeah, well, I just say that that same lack of knowledge has just moved up one. <laughs> call themselves producers. Essentially, being an actor, most of the time, as, as Anne was for many, many years, we basically are actors. When you get into an audition process, just because you're all directors and you get down to the wire, and even though you give a wonderful audition, you come back with a final callback, and you're not so good. Never. Mm -hmm. What happens? It's happened to me where I've gotten right down to the wire, and it just wasn't quite... Well, in my youth, what happened to me was I said to my husband, okay, Jerry, we'll do a comedy act, and we won't have to go to these <laughs> these Because it really gets down to the wire, don't you think? I have control of my life. Do you feel that way? Well, I was an actor for a long time. I do agree, yes, I'd, I, I'd, I'd, that you never, the callbacks are never, and as a director, you learn uh, that the second audition is not as good as the, as the first. Uh, and uh, sometimes if the second audition is as good, you start to worry. Um, everything makes you nervous. Um, but yeah. I, I do agree, it, it's, it's very hard, and it's very, you know, when you start, if you've been an actor, when you start becoming a director, you want to hire everybody, because yes. you just love them all. And, then and you, you want them to love you. And yes. you want them to love you. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that, but, um, I am. and uh, after a while, um, uh, you, you learn to be mean, uh, and say, no, this was right, and this isn't right, and... Uh, the reason I brought it, because I, I loved Crazy for You, and I so wanted to, because Gershwin was my idol and I auditioned for Michael. I don't know whether you remember. Very well. And oh I wanted word. it so <laughs> desperately. That's I what makes this show exciting. With <laughs> one leg and one hand behind my back, I wanted that show so desperately and I worked very hard on the audition just to, to go further into it and Make I... Make him feel bad. Oh yes, I put my little act together. <laughs> really I'm going to do a Gershwin performance and he's just going to love me and I've got to have this part. And I came out and the first thing you said to me, what are you going to do? I said, oh, I thought I would surprise you with some Gershwin. Mm -hmm. And there was just dead silence. It was <laughs> gong and gone. And I whipped into this routine that I put up, and that was the end. Thank you very much. But it was just that uh, at that moment, it was an interesting thing because I really loved it so much and so wanted to be a part of it. It was fascinating now that we're face yeah. to face. Was it the English your accent? Side. Yeah. <laughs> what is your side of that story? We won't want to talk uh, like you guys. That's <laughs> what <laughs> I hasten to add, I'm not English. I just had the misfortune of being in sent there. Somewhere in <laughs> yeah, Turkey, I went to Joey. I had dinner with you. Well, the, the audi you're absolutely right. The audition process, I think, is a is an, a very difficult process, and it's particularly difficult, I think, in musical theatre because it, yeah. there are 25 people sitting on a table mm -hmm. at a table, all of whom have an opinion, yeah. all of whom have a oh, really? category that. Uh, <laughs> No, I've never done a musical, so I don't know. I mean, I'm just there by myself as a and, director with you all. And you have a clear view of, of the talent that you need for the musical, both in singing and dancing, because it is well, both. You know what it is? I think that everybody hopes that the next person that you all want that person who's mm -hmm. coming on that stage to be it. You, the audition process is horrific for everybody. The sooner you can cast a show happily, the better, and you get out of it, I think. That's, that's it. So everybody who comes in is 
is uh, you expect them and hope that that's it, mm -hmm. and you draw a line under that Did, part. Does it happen that uh, one side, a whole bunch want one person, and the whole bunch want another person, and you settle for the third person who is probably not as good as the first two? I think that rarely happens. No. I think, I think in a musical, it's it's you normally, everybody finally... It's happened with you. Yeah. I like the part where you said they were sitting on the table. <laughs> on the table. Then they wouldn't worry as much. It's their egos are on the table, I think. Did, did you handle the auditions as well? Yes, and I think Leroy also, you know, I don't know about other people, but hopefully the people that are, are, are choosing, the directors and the choreographers, aren't judging you just purely by exactly what you're doing at that moment. Hopefully they're seeing something else or have the foresight to realize, well, he choked there, but listen to what he did on those two bars, and if he can do it on those two bars, he can do it for the whole... Keep so you're the looking... two bars up there. We have to stop just for... A short time so that you can stretch and we can come right back again and continue this. And there'll be some questions both from the audience and, and from everybody else here. So just don't go away. Have a drink. You have a minute to relax, do whatever you like. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. This seminar, which is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, is on the playwright-director, and it's an absolutely fascinating, interesting, and educational one. When we left, we were talking about the importance of the workshop, the actors that performed in the workshop, and how important it was to the production itself. So let's try and continue on that to go around and, and, and then go on to other things. There's so much to say. Well, one thing I wanted to, to get into, because I do think there is, I wanted to uh, uh, beat this a little bit more to death, but I, there is seems to be a, a separation and a very different dynamic going on between uh, the workshop of a musical and the reading of a play, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's a very, very different dynamic in how you approach, because there's so many, the collaborative nature of musicals and the, the individual nature of, of, of plays. And you want to address that, with Anne and, and Lloyd particularly, but well, Anne, I was eavesdropping on you guys. I mean, I didn't know what you were talking about. I said, this could, it should almost be two different seminars, mm -hmm. one for musicals and plays. I mean, because the needs of, that you guys deal with uh, that are, I am very ignorant of myself, never <clears throat> having been in a musical as an actor for very good reasons, since I don't <laughs> sing or dance. And, uh, and then the, uh, the director and playwright relationship in a uh, non-musical play. I, I just think, I think we can all learn from, I certainly, as a uh, old new writer, uh, can learn from hearing about this. but. I think there's different areas, different uh, agenda for the playwright and director than there is for the play, the book writer, the lyricist, the composer, the director, the choreographer, the whatever. I, I'm not sure that there is, actually. I think the relationship... Well, that's because you're British, don't you understand? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they disagree. They always say, oh, no, no, no. They smile. <laughs> and you're getting a shiv in your ribs. I know you. <laughs> the Brits are here. <laughs> The relationship Don't forget, she's Irish. Yes. Go ahead, my guys. Just being <laughs> vaguely amusing. 
I think the relationship between, <laughs> between the director and, and composer and lyricist is the same whether it's a director and a playwright for a play or a musical. It's, it's a very close, intimate relationship. That is I think the intimate relationship exists, but I think it's compounded by other just as valuable titular yeah, heads. More in principle, it is, the it is the true. Same. But yeah. it, in specifics, in how that work is manifest, it is different. It is quite different. <coughs> when you start working with a, as a, a director, with a composer, with a lyricist, with a choreographer, with a, there are so many hats that you're dealing with, that you are, and the dynamic of music, and the difference between music and, and choreography, and what choreography can do for music, and what music can do for choreography, which is very different than what is involved in a play, although the principle is the same. And the interaction between a playwright and a director over the, uh, the content of a script is a much simpler interaction, although it is certainly the same interaction. Yeah. I mean, in casting alone, uh, in a play, you cast the best actor, or you hope you have. Uh, but with a musical, you get the, an actor who reads the scene, and it's brilliant. And then he starts to sing, and the composer says to you, well, he can't hit that G, I've got to have that, uh, and, uh, and, the, and the poor boy has to go out. And you I mean, I had the G doesn't matter. The G doesn't matter. I mean, I had the misfortune of writing a, a book uh, and directing my own musical, and it, it was very hard. It was, it was very painful, uh, because I, I felt I was the lowest person on the totem there. Um, and um, every, everybody else came first, uh, and yet I tried not to let that happen. And it was, um, it was, it was a painful process, uh, particularly as we didn't workshop it and we just put it on at, at a regional theater. Um, but it is hard. I think you said it so beautifully when you talked about intent, because everybody has different intent in the workshop. As the director choreographer, my intent was to explore the material. The producer's intent was to raise the money. So I think that, you know, that really says it very well. How can you take risks, though, if you're worried about presenting a good foot forward? Well, the danger, as I said before, is showing half work to fools, but what's the alternative? I mean, I wasn't going to worry myself with that. I had to believe that <coughs> let the producers do their job and produce. I was just going to do my job. And we did take chances and explore and did wacky choreography and we played with, you know. I was there to explore the material and the music and the staging We're and the choreography. We're talking about buskers. Can we talk further about it? What's going to happen to this show now? I, I don't think anyone really knows. It, it, well, he will heal. <laughs> he will heal. See, he's, he, we did a show. I directed a one-man concert of Tommy's called Tommy Tune Tonight, and he broke his fifth metatarsal on his left foot. And he was dancing, um, you know, a few months after that, and now he broke his fifth metatarsal on his right foot. So he's very balanced, as Carol. She <laughs> <laughs> said, it's the yin and the yang. <laughs> so the fate of Busker Alley is somewhere in the universe, but I really, in my heart, as I said before, to reiterate, to reiterate the, it will all work out when it's meant to work out. Perhaps we weren't to open in the fall. She means should we they hold the, the marquee? Should <laughs> they keep the marquee? Because every time I go down the street, I see Busker Alley. In a word, yes. Keep the marquee. Keep the marquee. Keep the theater painted yellow. That's it. Yeah, that's, right. that's nice, actually. Um, you know, uh, Leroy, you, you were saying something, too, at the break about uh, you know, you, you are a director, uh, you uh, are an actor, 
have you written, and if so, you, you know, what have you done? And we were talking about how nowadays to survive in the theater, since part of the seminars are about that and are working in the theater. Uh, would you go on about what you were saying about what, you, what you, the needs are for somebody well, these when I first, days? In when the I day. first came to New York, there were lots of productions casting, and if you could walk and talk and do it eight times a week, basically you got cast in something because there was such a, a wealth of material. Now there isn't. So now you find that if you want to make money and survive in the industry, which is what I want to do, and I have a Master of Arts degree from a major university, but I studied dance, I studied voice, I studied acting, directing, everything, and I find that now not only do I have to do all of the above to make a living, I also have to be inventive on finding projects to do when I'm not working because I have a lifestyle that I like very much. And I did a, a, a Rodgers and Hammerstein thing for Columbia mm -hmm. Artists, which I put together and wrote. I just grabbed a, all the books that I could get on, on Rodgers and Hammerstein, wrote the, the, the interplay between the numbers, and presented it and sold it just so that I could make a buck. And that's basically what it is. And not that I have great aspirations to do one thing or the other. I just want to work in the industry. So I find that I have to do everything and change the hats constantly. I don't know how good that is because maybe I'm not getting a, a big enough identification as a product to sell because suddenly I'm a box of Bisquick. I can do a lot of things, so I don't know <laughs> whether that's of advantage to me or not, but I, I do know that it keeps me working, and that is the most important thing because how I, I like it. How far have you gone into the media to survive? Are you doing things in media no. to survive? No, no, I haven't. Just all theater. No, I, but I, I mean, it did a little bit of it, but basically always has to go back to, to uh, television, I mean, to uh, theater. Anything I do on television is usually a song and dance person who's going to be on a musical variety show or something for PBS. No one should have to apologize for trying to make a buck. No, no, and, and I'm not apologizing. I'm just saying that that's what, if you want to do it, you have to be very, uh, you have to do a, a lot of different things nowadays. You just can't, you know. And why did you switch from acting to this? You're still acting, I know, but why? I'm but, still acting in Afterplay. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, occasionally I'll go out with Jerry Still and my husband for a particular club date or something, or, or prior to the play I was doing that. And we still write and do radio commercials for the Amalgamated Bank. And that was one source of income in the past as, as actors. As actors, I wasn't joking. I mean, the feeling of powerlessness you get. I'm sure all of us here have private things, whether we choose to or not, to talk to a therapist about as to why we even choose. Nobody hit us on the head and said, you must be an actor, you must be a director, you must be a playwright. No one would ever force you to do that. Whereas a parent might force you to be a stockbroker or a banker or a teacher or something real. <laughs> so, uh, you know, an actor a bum. But uh, I'm saying that we uh, started out of improvisational theater as actors and then out of that improvisational theater doing sketches. We were always writing, but we never called it writing. And then we had a comedy act. And we had our little 15 seconds of being hot there back in the uh, 70s or whatever. But we were always actors, so we were doing several things. And uh, what I always liked to do at that time was just to, to act. But I now like really to, to write and just keep writing until I can, can't stop. It's interesting, there's, there's almost always in, in this seminar uh, a, a large number of crossover from the actor to director mostly, very seldom actor to playwright. <coughs> it's mostly actor to director. 
What about you, Mike? Have you? Well, I actually started off as a dancer doing Broadway shows, mm -hmm. and but I was constantly telling everybody else what to do. All the other chorus boys, so I realized I better direct. <laughs> so, um, but w just getting back to one thing, which I, I found so interesting, when we were talking about the difference between plays and musicals. One of the things I found, mostly as a performer, because and a little bit as a director, is the difference when you're working with stars. And what I found, for the most part, is musicals are usually based, for the most part, on working with stars, just as we're talking about the market, you know, to get something done, you need a star. And sometimes in the process, it's not so much what's good for the play or good for the musical, it's what might be good for the star, and that can be in conflict. Do you want to talk about that at all, Leroy? <laughs> <laughs> well, well everything, everything was there, and, you know, Carol had been associated with, with the product for 30 years, and that in itself was, was a plus and a minus too. We're just trying to think of it differently and although, you know, uh, I don't want to get into it, this is all going to be televised, so I'm going to be, you know, and we brought it to court or anything, but basically it is different. Carol will never admit to that, but it is different. Mm -hmm. Jeff, what were you going to say? No, I think that part of the key in Buskers, and we've had a lot, you know, there was a time when Buskers, Busker Alley, we've had 12 titles. We've had more <laughs> titles than Elizabeth Taylor's had husbands. It's right. ridiculous. But part of the problem with Buskers and finding a way to make it really good was the conflict between having Tommy Toon, who does certain things as well as they can be done, find out how to best match that, what he does, with the story that takes place in Busker Alley. And I think when we first started, they were diametrically opposed. I was directing a show that was not serving a show that had Tommy Toon as its star. And the more we integrated that and made it a Tommy Toon musical, the better it got, the happier the people were, and the more successful we became. But it took a while to find its way, and that was my, I take full responsibility for starting us off in that wrong direction. Uh, Michael, you, did you start with Swinging on a Star? I mean, was that your concept, or how did, how did that um, work? And then the Mary Burke Kramer, who's Johnny Burke's widow, um, Johnny, uh, Johnny's big success was in pop music and in Hollywood, but he came to, to Broadway and he wrote three or four Broadway shows, some of which had wonderful scores, and Here's That Rainy Day, etc., from Carnival in Flanders, but he never had a hit. And his goal, his dream, was always to have a Broadway hit. So she's always wanted to do a musical of Johnny's songs, and they... Uh, saw a show I, I directed called Hello Mother, Hello Fada, and they contacted me. And that's how that came. And they gave me his tapes. He wrote over like 500, 600 songs, and his career spanned over five or six decades. And um, so when I listened to it, I knew I, I kind of wanted to take the audience through a musical journey through time, and I didn't want to just do, and then he wrote. So I put the show into seven little mini vignettes with a story that takes place in each decade and used Johnny's career and his songs as sort of a guidepost around which the stories take place. Now, so you really were also, uh, like Michael, you were also uh, uh, the writer in many, many ways. Absolutely, and, and I, I didn't know how much I would be writing until I really got into it and uh, talking about the process, for example, and how valuable it was going from George Street to Goodspeed to Broadway. There's a segment, uh, which is the Hollywood segment, because uh, Johnny wrote all the songs for the Road to movies. And originally, I did it as sort of a keystone copy and uh, 
version where instead of going to uh, road to you know Bali they were now going to road to Teaneck and road to and <laughs> took it all over and uh, it didn't quite work I mean it was okay but it didn't quite work and then I realized uh, that what I needed to do was write my own road to movie and the director in me was demanding that and the writer was procrastinating but finally by the third production I did it and it worked the best but that's why the process was so valuable is, as um, Jeff was saying that while the producers were raising the money and going from place to place if we had gotten the money originally I don't know that it would have been as good a product as it ended up being because I had the luxury of going to regional theaters which was one of the things talking about out of town that I found is so valuable is, is co-enhancement deals in the regional theaters like George Street and Goodspeed that provide the place to continue the process. I want to go back to, I'm sorry, but I just wanted to go back to something we touched on very lightly at the beginning, and that is working with a, a playwright, dead or alive, but redoing a show such as you're doing now on Death Trap, John. You're well, working I'm with a live really playwright. Su I'm so surprised that you're even mentioning Death Trap. I mean, I vaguely heard about that I might be doing it a little while ago, so... Well, this is a question along. I all knew that. Uh, no, no, I've signed no contract and, and all the rest of it. I think I am doing it. I haven't even uh, thought well, about it for one. this should be a fair warning to them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, it's it's not until September 96, so... Uh, We're the first to know. You're the first to know. There are a lot of other things between that and, yeah. uh, and, and, uh, and uh, Could I do a, for instance, and how do you work with a revival of a play and the playwright being there at the same time? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, without I, it being just a copy of what I, he I, did. I was very lucky, in, in, uh, when I started my career as a director and directing Joe Wharton's plays, and I think if Joe Wharton had been around, I probably would have been. I had met him once, but only very briefly, just to say hello. Um, I think I would have been very intimidated by him. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, his plays were not a success in, in, uh, in New York, and um, thank God my, my revivals were. It, it, that, I think, is, uh, is in a way easier than what you had to do, uh, maybe that you have a, a playwright who remembers his play slightly differently than what it was 25 years earlier uh, because he, he uh, has it in the context of that time which isn't true of now and you have to you can't rethink death trap I mean as I said I haven't haven't uh, uh, really examined it at all except my interest uh, saying that I was interested um, I, I think that if it's a, if it's a, a play I am going to do a revival and I'm not at liberty to to talk about it at the moment because it's not signed uh, a deal but um, you have to rethink it you can't just simply have the old set and um, make it exactly the same because we're living in a different age I don't I don't go that far as some of the uh, British uh, 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 directors and designers who who really break it up completely and and it's a completely revisionist uh, vision of a play of an old classic that doesn't um, that doesn't work for me. I still am interested in the text. Didn't you do a, a revival with Arthur Miller? Uh, yes, I. I uh, what does that mean? Jeez, <laughs> no, God. Uh, that's God. Yeah, that's God. Hello, God. I worked with that stuff, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I did. I, I worked with. Uh, I did two revivals of Arthur Miller's plays, uh, After the Fall and 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 The Price, and um, they were both successful up to a point. Uh, in fact, they were really quite successful. But one thing I would say about Arthur is he's the most pragmatic man. And uh, when I did After the Fall, I, I suggested that the, the part of the brother did not work. Um, and he said, well, it doesn't work, cut it. 
Um, and uh, I wish other uh, playwrights um, had that attitude. He, he, he's very pragmatic in that way. And, uh, and with the price, we, we cut a few lines here and there. Uh, I, think, um, I, I think if I don't have a, 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 an affinity with a playwright, I tend not to direct the play. I mean, I, I have a meeting and... and uh, Wouldn't you you'd agree with that too, Lloyd? I mean, that uh, for a long term, isn't it? It's absolutely. That, uh, that if really, it's a live playwright. It's a live playwright. Uh, and you don't make it together as human beings. Respect. If respect doesn't exist, and respect has to the, exist to the point that uh, a playwright will listen to you and really take what you have to say to heart. It doesn't mean that he has to do what I say, but it does mean that he has to consider what I say, and I have to consider what he says. And if that respect exists, something is possible. If not, forget it. Hmm. Respect breeds uh, trust. Yeah. Yes. I know of directors who turn up to, to the playwright with copious notes and hundreds of questions, and I say, well, if you've got to ask that many questions, you probably don't understand the play. Um, I mean, obviously, you have some questions, and you, you uh, and as you said earlier, and you said it so succinctly, sometimes playwrights don't know what they've written, and you have to explain it to them. Uh, <laughs> try. Uh, I'll yeah. try. Yeah. Um, um, I could use a story of Arthur Miller's, of, of him uh, doing um, Incident in Vichy, and he came up on stage to, to Guinness and... Uh, and um, Tony Quayle and said to them, uh, you know, this play is about such and such and such and such. And Guinness looked around at him and said, no, it's not. Only the British, dear. <laughs> Only the British. I'll tell an August Wilson story that he tells. I'll tell because he isn't here to tell it. Uh, one of the plays that I did with him, uh, he gave me the play, and I gave it back to him, and I said, uh, there's one scene too many in this play. And I gave him the play, and that's all I said. And he tells a story that I never said which scene. <laughs> and he went and he cut a scene, and he brought the play back, and I still never told him which scene I thought should be cut. And I can't now because the story is that old and that valuable. <laughs> I could never say which scene I thought should have been cut. It was obviously was right. not the right scene. It was <laughs> oh, obviously it was the right scene. Oh, Good <laughs> <laughs> Or the scene, if I had another scene in mind, I was wrong. <laughs> but it cut was right. We have some questions here, and could we now go to them? Hi, my name is Lauren Pollock. I'm a choreographer and a student. And I have a question for Mr. O'Krant, actually, on Big and how you took that movie that was so popular and brought it to the stage as a musical and how you directed it and where the actors, how they stand and where, how they feel on taking a musical that was once a very popular movie and now becoming those actors. Well, I have to correct your tense because we haven't, actually, hasn't, we yes, haven't yes. started it yet. But... Um, we're, uh, we don't go into rehearsals till December, December the 11th. But uh, it, it's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Maybe some, we haven't addressed this, which is why suddenly nearly all the musicals are started from movies. Victor mm. Victoria. Victor um, Victoria, yeah, big. big Sunset Boulevard. It's suddenly become uh, the because movie they're adaptions. They're safer. Don't you it's think? because we know them. But what it does is interesting is that uh, once you start, and it, it's an interesting question, because if you, well, yours as well, of course was uh, Buscarelli started life as a, 
as yes, a movie. Yes, but it means that's right, absolutely. You know, it, it, and what you find is, is that when you start to look at the structure of a movie, which is normally a three-act structure, yeah. and then you start trying to make it into a two-act structure, you get into terrible problems. So that uh, one of the, the, the process that's taken so long, it's actually three and a half years of writing, four years of writing that's been going on by Maltby and Shire and John, uh, has been nearly all about structure. It's virtually, well, it's not true to say that nothing is uh, in about the detail. <laughs> My name is Melanie White. I'm a director. My question is for Mr. Richards, Mr. Tillinger, Mr. Calhoun. Uh, each of you has worked over the course of time with the same playwright or, or other artists. I'm wondering what initially in a relationship compels you to pursue it, and as a relationship has developed over the years, whether that changes the way that you approach a rehearsal process with that artist. Uh, I'll start last part. Well, it changes. It doesn't change uh, substantially or basically, but what does change is the way you behave, because hopefully each of you grows a little bit uh, with each production that you do. You learn something, and I always consider that by the time I complete a play, I should have gone past that play in my own growth. And if I went back and did it again, I might do it quite differently. And so there is a, 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 relation, a change and alteration in the relationship. And if just to talk about uh, my work with August Wilson, which has gone on for 12 years now, August knew very little about theater. He's a poet. So when he came and started writing his initial plays, uh, if you go back and look at the old scripts, or I do, there's no, uh, there's no direction in it. There's no, uh, not always a sense of place and time, and a character might stay in the scene and uh, not speak for pages and pages and be forgotten and has to come back. And those are things that, uh, that over the years the playwright has learned to do. So you don't find those things in the later scripts. So the working relationship alters in those respects in terms of the knowledge and we talk very little because we seem to understand what one another is going to say before we say it so you say the uh, the things that are essential and not the unessential things working with um, a playwright it's like a marriage you know if any or most of you are married or have a close relationship you know there are things uh, that are, it is not necessary to say. Somebody comes in and says, hello, and you say, what's wrong? <laughs> uh, because you know that other human being, and they say so much in just saying the simplest thing. Well, that's what begins to happen when you work with and deeply with another person over a period of time. It's the absence of language, unnecessary language. They can destroy a relationship. I would agree with all of that. Um, he, says, he said it beautifully. I've never pursued a, a playwright. Um, they've come to me. And, um, and it is, for me, rehearsals are a period of discovery. I, I don't have a set goal that I'm trying to, to, uh, to go to. Uh, to. And um, it is, I think if we have to start talking a lot, I know where I'm in trouble, that I'm not, uh, I'm not in tune with the author. And I've been very lucky in the three or four that I've, worked with extensively that we really understand each other. 
Well, mine has been a bit different. I'm assuming you're talking about um, my association with Tommy Toon. And that began as a teacher-student. I was in the chorus. He was a star in Summerstock. And so as the years went on and I just started to learn and learn and learn from Tommy is when this partnership, well, as it became a partnership. But that's exactly what happens. Language ceases and you just, or when you do talk, you finish each other's sentences. Right. And that's kind of how we work. We have very similar interests. The same kind of shows make us happy. And so I think that's why, if we are successful when we work together, that's why we like the same what things. What a wonderful, wonderful wealth of talent you has been shown on this seminar today and how, how extraordinary you all are in, in sharing this talent with us. I don't know when I've enjoyed anything myself so much and wish it could go on and on and on. But unfortunately, it has to stop. You all have to go back to work in the theater. And I will close this by saying I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theater Wing, and I am indeed very proud of the organization that can bring the kind of people that we have here today to discuss their background and their futures with you. This is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and it is the American Theatre Wing and just one more of its year-round programs. Thank you very much, dear panelists, for being here, and thank you for staying with us.